We are now going to read together from Joel, chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, and 11 to 14. My American accent comes out real strong when I read. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness spread upon the mountains, a great and powerful army comes. Their like has never been from old, nor will be again after them in ages to come. Fire devours in front of them, and behind them a flame burns. Before them the land is like the Garden of Eden, but after them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. The Lord utters his voice at the head of his army, how vast is his host. Numberless are those who obey his command. Truly, the day of the Lord is great, terrible indeed. Who can endure it? Yet even now, says the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your clothing. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relents from punishing. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Beautiful. We are um, sharing at the moment about and looking at what it is of the character of God and who is this God that we serve and what it means to actually know him. Uh, and so tonight we get to explore a bit in, from the prophet Joel, from the fire that devours all that is in front of it, which is a, just a comforting image, isn't it? <laughs> uh, but it is an amazing chapter, the, the chapter in chapter 2, uh, Joel chapter 2. Uh, I was reading through the whole chapter earlier this week, and it's just like, it's so, it's an amazing, profound chapter. So if you need something to read this week, check out Joel chapter 2. <laughs> you go through the waves of fire and rescue. So it's, it's got it all in it. Um, yeah, there was a woman known uh, in the 5th century uh, AD, uh, there was a woman who was known as Saint Mary of Egypt. Now this woman, uh, she uh, lived a life of debauchery. And she lived a life of, um, as a prostitute. She was a prostitute in these days, in the 5th century, uh, in the early days. And there was one uh, journey that she took as a prostitute. She was travelling to Jerusalem. She was indulging in her sinful lifestyle. And while she was there, she decided to visit a church. And she got to the church doors and she found herself unable to enter into the church there was this mysterious force that stopped her, prevented her from passing into the doors. And feeling a sudden sense of remorse and, and shame, she understood that this was her sin that was stopping her from getting into these doors. And right there and then on the church, on the outside of the church, uh, Mary falls to her knees there and she prays this prayer asking God to forgive her. And it was in that moment she had this sudden, overwhelming sense of God's presence and peace. 
she felt this deep desire to renounce her sinful way, to renounce her life, to renounce everything that she did and devote her life to God. Now, St. Mary spent the rest of her life, some 40 plus years, uh, living as a hermit, living out in the desert, in the wilderness, uh, and dedicated her life to prayer and fasting, dedicated her life to a, a deep, righteous living and devotion. And despite the harshness of, of the desert and the life that she lived, St. Mary uh, became known for her radiant joy. She was joyous to everyone she met. She had this ability to, to seek and see the best in people, and people were so inspired by her righteous way of living and her devotion that many different pilgrims in, in this era, there was some known as the, the Desert Fathers, men and women of faith who, who came out of the Roman system and got to be with God in the desert and built their faith, built their strength of their faith away from the bigness of Rome in the desert, in the wilderness. And St. Mary was one of these people that pilgrims would go to. People would leave the cities to, to see and encounter and hear the goodness and the guidance and the blessing of St. Mary. She was an example of someone who lived a deep life of repentance. And a beautiful word, repentance, something that we talk about in church, but is probably not really talked about a lot outside of that, of repentance. And in, in this season of Lent, we're remembering this, this notion of repentance. We're remembering first our sinfulness, the state that we're in, but we're also a turn to repent and turn to actually give ourselves again to Jesus, trusting in him, trusting not in the things of this world, but trusting in him. And it's in this season that we are stripped away of our prides and our efforts and we're actually brought to new life. There is new life as we come into places of repentance. Uh, Esau Macaulay, a, um, a writer, he, he says this, that Lent is God loving you enough to tell you the truth about yourself, but not condemning you for it, but actually saying you can do better than that. That's what this beautiful season is about. It's, it's God telling us the truth of our sinfulness, but not leaving us in that state, but actually calling us to a, a better way of living, a new way of living that we can do better than that. And here in our, in our um, reading here tonight from the prophet Joel, uh, he is talking about this impending destruction of the people of Israel. The people of Israel had lived in such rebellion and in such sin away from God, doing their own things, setting up uh, false god idols, setting up uh, things for other gods, doing a, a completely way, a different way of living that God had instructed them to do. They had lived in rebellion for all these years and there was a consequence for their sin. There was a consequence for what they had done. And so it talks about the day of the Lord coming in darkness, in fire, in a great powerful army that in front of them they see a beautiful garden of Eden but as the army goes through it, it brings destruction and a desolate wilderness is left behind. But there's a turn in this scene where it is doom and gloom, where the day of the Lord of judgment is coming upon the people there is a return. 
There is a repentance. There is a turning away from those things and turning our hearts with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, our hearts to God. This is what the prophet Joel is instructing for them to do. And it's in this moment as they turn and repent that they declare these words, these words that we've talked about in the last few services found originally in Exodus 34, these words that say, God, you are gracious and merciful. You're slow to anger and you're abounding in steadfast, loyal love and faithfulness. These are such powerful, important words, and we're going to look at these words tonight. But first, we, we, let's just address the whole notion of repentance. <sighs> let's talk about what it means to actually repent, because we need help in this, in our world around us. We need help to actually learn what it means to live in repentance, Maybe not the most exciting thing that I can call everybody up to. Let's live a life of repentance, everybody. But this is the, what it means, the core foundations of what it means to be a Christian. And, and there are three movements of what, what it means to actually live in repentance. First, we need to actually see our shortcomings. We need to take notice of them. We secondly need to acknowledge our shortcomings, actually name them in, uh, to God or to, to somebody else. And then we thirdly need to turn from our shortcomings. Again, first, to see our shortcomings means that we become aware of what we get wrong. We actually become aware and we identify what's happening inside of this. And sometimes this can actually take years. We don't even notice the things that we do wrong sometimes. We don't notice that that attitude or that, that lash out of anger is actually connected to something deep in us, that there's something that isn't quite right with us, that we've got these shortcomings and these sins that actually are infecting who we are. And our first response to re repentance is actually to notice them and see them in our lives and to take note of what is happening. Secondly, we acknowledge them, that we don't just go along with it, but we actually declare out our shortcomings, that this is a part of who we are, that we bring them to God, and occasionally we also bring it to others. We bring it to friends and family. We bring it to pastors or, or people or, or counsellors or uh, different people. We actually bring and acknowledge our shortcomings. It's in, in, as in that acknowledgement that we're able to actually say sorry we can actually repent before God and say sorry. And then thirdly, um, in repentance, we actually turn. It's about changing our ways. It's, a, it's about allowing God to actually address and change the things that have transformed us and, and, and let God change us. And slowly, slowly, this is the slowest part of the process, the changing, is this little bit by little bit, God forms a new character in us, a new way of living and despite the fact that we want this done quickly and now, God actually wants to slowly work in us, changing and transforming us uh, and yeah, changing our shortcomings to actually be aligned with his goodness and mercy. And so repentance is important. It's necessary for the Christian life for us to continue to allow uh, God into our world. We need repentance but often we, we get sidetracked. We get taken by life. Uh, we avoid and ignore repentance. We get too caught up with what's going on inside of us to actually remember repentance. 
we can often, firstly, be too distracted to see our shortcomings. Our phones, our careers, our families, our life is filled with so much that we don't have space to see what's really inside of us. We don't allow ourselves space to actually see what's inside of us because we're just too distracted with what's going on. Secondly, we can be too scared to acknowledge what would happen if I actually acknowledged that this is a sin of mine. We can be too scared to actually confront and acknowledge the sin and shortcomings in our lives. That's, that doesn't go along with the, the happy, positive vibes of our current culture, that we just need to speak positivity over us. But what if we actually acknowledge our shortcomings? We can be too scared to do that sometimes. And then thirdly, we can be too busy to actually turn and change. To actually change something in our lives requires effort and time. And it requires us actually looking at our habits and our routine and go, maybe I actually need to do something differently. Actually, the way that I have been living isn't actually in line with what I feel God is calling me to. This requires an actual effort. And we're just too busy for that. There's just too much happening. There's too much going on. It'll, it'll have to wait. Sorry, God. And so as encouraging and exciting this message is so far. This is, this is the game that I'm, I'm in. This is what we're all a part of. This call to repentance is a journey to actually see and not be distracted by the things of our world. See the things, the sin in our life, to acknowledge them and not to be too scared to confront it and think that God isn't big enough to deal with it. Because that's, I mean, ultimately what our fear is, that if I name this, what, is that going to take over me? Or can God actually heal me of that? And then not be too busy to actually let God do something in us. There's a beautiful call to repentance. That is the, the call of the Christian. And so even just have a think about these three areas. Maybe where is it for you that needs attention in repentance? Maybe you don't think you have any shortcomings you probably need to actually see them. You maybe need some work at seeing your shortcomings. Maybe you, 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 know, you think you, if you acknowledge them, it's actually going to make you worse. That's, it's actually going to do harm to you. But acknowledging them can bring freedom to your life as you bring them to God and to others. And maybe, yeah, you're too busy and preoccupied. What is it for you? Where, which area of repentance is actually necessary and helpful for you to look at and confront and bring to God as we lead a life of repentance? Now, the point of these exercises, the point of this hard beginning, this deep go and dive right here, in the, right in the beginning, is not to lead us to feel shame and guilt, not to lead us to feel like we're terrible people, but it's actually in our place of repentance that we can experience the fullness of God's love and grace. It's when we realize that we are sinners, that we experience the, the mercy of God. It's in this place of repentance that we truly get the glimpse of the goodness of God. In Romans uh, chapter 2, St. Paul is addressing the church and, and talking about not judging one another, realizing that that attitude of judgment is a lack of repentance. It's not seeing God the right way. It says here in verse, uh, verse 3, do you imagine, whoever you are, that when you judge those who do such things and do them yourself, you will escape the judgment of 
God? Or do you despise the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience? Do you despise the riches of God? Do you not realize that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? It's in this place of repentance that we actually can turn and see the the character and the goodness of God. It's when we can really experience it. Without repentance, we don't fully see the goodness and greatness of God. But also on the other, the flip side, without seeing God's character, without seeing his kindness, we aren't truly led to repentance. And so for us to know God, we need this dance of living a life of repentance and then seeing the goodness and greatness of God. This beautiful dance that we go in as a Christian the stance of seeing, being in repentance and living in the good, uh, and seeing his goodness alive in us. And so we turn to these amazing characteristics. We're going to uplift it a bit here. We're going to turn to the, the goodness of God and where, what, what we're looking at when we actually see God and experience him. What, what, are the, what are these characteristics that are being described here in the prophet Joel, but also, but originally these were words spoken by God to Moses on Mount Sinai that he is gracious, and, uh, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loyal love and faithfulness. Now, Michaela, last service, did a great job at, um, talking through uh, the word compassionate, which is the Hebrew word rachum, which uh, talks about uh, the, the motherly love, that the root word of that word comes from the word womb. And just like a mother cares for her nursing child, so does God care and nurture for us. He, he, he cares for us as this nurturing uh, quality to us. And so we're going to look at the the remaining four characteristics here and just kind of sweep over them as we get a glimpse of God here tonight. Uh, Firstly, I just want to acknowledge the beautiful design of this verse and these verses that, as you see, these kind of, they're in this uh, chiastic form, uh, this structure of Hebrew writing. Uh, And you have these two pairs. You've got compassionate and gracious and loyal love and faithfulness. And these pairs are at the top and bottom in the middle, this slow to anger. They're kind of trying to make a point here, and we'll get to the points. Um, but these, these form, as you look at them and understand them, they, you actually are meant to see the value together. And so compassionate and gracious are linked together so often, and so, as well as loyal love and faithfulness. There's this connection between those two pairs that are important to grab a hold of, and you know, they, they are beautifully intermeshed. And so compassion, as we talked about, is this loving care and nurture. And then gracious is the word hanun, uh, which if, if you look at the noun of that word, which is han, uh, that is, is something that is desirable. And so when we look at something that is desirable, that is hun. And so when someone is hanun, it means they are someone who is looking at you desirably. It's like God is actually looking at you and I and saying, I I like that. There's something about you that I like, that I'm drawn to, that that I find favour in. This word gracious is, is actually saying that th- they find favour in looking at you. Just as, as you may look at a beautiful ballet dancer and they look gracious, they're kind of it's gracious as they dance the floor. 
It's, you're desiring and looking at that and, and approving it. It's, it, it. You find favor in watching that. And so when God looks upon us, he looks with favor. He looks upon us with this desire for us. When we can think of that word gracious, we can kind of almost connect it to this pity. Oh, God kind of looks upon us and he's, he's showing a grace for us because we don't deserve it and he's, he's loving us despite us not deserving it. And we can almost have this, this pity sense that he's doing it even though we don't deserve it. But what is so beautiful about grace is that he actually looks favorably. He desires you for who you are. He longs for you and loves you and cares for you. This is where these two words connect, this nurturing, loving care of a mother with this gracious favour. He looks upon you with this desire and love. It's so amazing that our God would look upon us with this. And this is, you know, where we, uh, the word grace is where we get the, the word gift from. It's all connected to a gift that when God looks upon us graciously, favorably, it is the greatest gift for us that we experience his love despite us not earning it and doing anything to deserve it. He still wants to look upon us with grace as a desirable heart upon him. It's so amazing that God's love, that he is compassionate and gracious. And then in the middle, we have this word, slow to anger. And in the King James Version, it's translated as long-suffering. King James, come on, let's do it. Which I actually like that translation, and only because it's actually closer to the literal meaning of the words there, long-suffering. Uh, and actually translated it is literally long of nose is what is being spoken here in Hebrew. Long of nose, that God is long of nose towards you. <laughs> uh, and in the Hebrew thought, the nose was, and the nostrils in particular, was connected to anger. And uh, when someone was hot of nostrils, it was like, you know, you can see the image of them burning up, being steam coming out of their nostrils of anger. Uh, that was the image that the Hebrew people had for anger. And that's what the, the words that they spoke um, uh, as someone who was angry was hot of nose, hot of nostrils. And so for someone to be long of nose meant that they took a long time to actually get angry. It took a lot for them to get angry and, and be that hot of nose. And this beautiful picture that uh, yeah, it takes this long time for God to get angry. And when many people think about God, and particularly the, the Old Testament God, they, they think of an angry God. They think of someone who's just as judgmental, impatient, and just this jealous, angry God. But the Hebrew people thought the opposite. They saw that God was long in his anger, that it took him a long time to actually get angry. He had to put up He's someone that actually puts up with what we do, with our rebellion, with our sin. He puts up with it with such a long time for us to get it across. We, we need a long time to get it across. And he is very patient and long-suffering with us. And, and that, that's why I kind of like that word, long-suffering, because it connects to this thought that God suffers this long time in our rebellion in our sin, and he will relent and he will be patient and take this long time to actually suffer before he gets angry. This beautiful word that is here, long-suffering, this beautiful long of nostrils that God is ex- 
uh, described. Or well, yeah, it's not, it's not even a characteristic. It's something that, that's why kind of it's in the middle. It's not actually even a characteristic. It's actually explaining something that God does, that he is long in his suffering, in his patience, slow to anger. And then if we look on the, uh, the bottom layer, we're looking at, uh, firstly, abounding in loyal love. This amazing word, hesed, uh, which is just an incredible Hebrew word. There's actually no kind of uh, uh, connection. No one can translate this word one for one for the same word because there's so many deep, so, so, such deep meaning behind this word that people uh, struggle to translate it. And if you look through your English Bibles, you'll see different translation for this term hesed. <clears throat> Some will just uh, use love. Uh, there's one uh, writer uh, that just used commitment. There's another, other writers that use steadfast love. Uh, and I love the term loyal love, that this word is actually connected to uh, a commitment to this covenant. It's about how you actually treat one another within your relationship. This word is connected to a committed love, standing by somebody over the years and doing something because of your committed, loyal love. Uh, and Tim Mackey from the Bible Project, he explains and talks about this word and gives this example of um, when a man and woman have been uh, married for a long time and as they are getting on in years, uh, the wife of the partner, she falls ill and is um, put in a wheelchair and is unable to do many of the things that she was able to do growing up. And um, instead of this man putting this woman into somebody else's care, he, he decides to give up his career, give up his job, and to dedicate his life to looking after his wife. Now, in full knowledge of knowing that his wife's not going to be able to repay him, do anything to repay his actions, but because of his committed, generous love for his wife, he's going to give up his career to look after him, her. This is a hesed kind of love. This is a commitment kind of love, a kind of love that is sacrificial, and generous, but is, is also around this commitment that you made to one another, that I am committed to you, and I will do whatever it takes to, to uh, lavish you with the generosity that I can provide. And so when it comes to God and his people, when it comes to God and us, he has committed himself to us. And he says that I have I've got this generosity that is abounding for you this abounding generosity and commitment for you and for me, this love that is so great, this deep commitment. And so when we think of the hesed love of God's commitment for us, we can have this assurance, this knowledge that he's committed to me. His love goes so deep, it's so generous. And we can, yeah, be strengthened and empowered by this committed love, this generosity and his sacrificial love towards us. That is hesed. And then secondly, it's the last word, faithfulness, which is the word emet. And this speaks of a trustworthiness. And this is, again, connected to the loyal love. Uh, this committed love is also a steadfast, faithful faithfulness and trustworthiness. There's this steadiness about God 
that when we, we actually use these words, trust and faith, so often in the Christian language, we, we use this and it's really important about how we believe in God. When we trust him, we, we put our faith in him, being the God we depend on. Uh, but this word can also kind of be used as kind of a throwaway. Yeah, just trust God even when we don't understand it. It could be used even, even as like this blind kind of trust. But that's not how the people of Hebrew, uh, they, they saw this word. They didn't use this word as this blind trust. But they only used this word if they could put their trust in something that was trustworthy. It was only important and it relied upon the trustworthiness of the object. When they used this term that you could trust it, it meant they truly believed in the trustworthiness of God. Truly believed that he is a steady, solid rock. Someone we can fully, truly trust. Someone that is not going to fail us, but we can rely upon. Jesus talks about this in in, uh the Sermon on the Mount, when at, the, at the concluding, he talks about when you build a house on the rock, on the solid foundation that's trustworthy, it, the rain will come, the storm will come, and it will stay solid. It will stay there. But if you build your house on sand, the rain will come, the storm will come, and it will crumble. And so when we build our lives on the trustworthiness of God, on his faithfulness, then our life is built around the strength of who God is. That's the solid ground of who our lives are built upon, that we can trust that as we build our lives around the centre of Christ, at the centre of who we are, then we know that in difficult times, in hard times, we will be strengthened. It doesn't mean we won't go through hard times. It doesn't mean the storms won't come. It will. We'll still go through the storms, but we will stand strong knowing that God is our rock. He's the one that keeps us steady. He's the one that keeps us together. And so there's this beautiful view as we see God, as we come to worship him, as we come before him in prayer and, and in this season in fasting, as we come in repentance, we see God in the fullness of who he is. And these statements, these beautiful characteristics of God, as we glimpse his love and care, as we glimpse his patience, his commitment, his trustworthiness, we are strengthened as we actually glean in and see him in our lives. We're empowered by who he is in his life for us. And so, again, we, if we look at those three kind of movements, we can, we can summarise um, these movements into three kind of ways of looking and seeing God. That he is, God is loving and caring. He's nurturing. That he sees us with delight and favour. He looks upon you and sees delight in you that God is slow to anger, that he suffers a long time before reacting with judgment, but he is patient with us and that God is trustworthy and committed. He has a generous love towards us as steady as a rock, that this is the God that we look at, that we come to 
in our life of repentance that we bring who we are before him because he cares for us and that he wants the best for our lives. In, in a world that is trying to find these characteristics in, in so many other things, in, in somebody else or something else, we you know, long, long for a partner to be that nurturing delight in us. We, we long for uh, a security, a steadiness to, to keep us stable in life through our careers, through our possessions, through our relationships. We long for uh, so many things in our life to grab a hold of through our culture, but ultimately many of these things can fall short as they don't truly meet up and match what we are trying to get. But as we come to God, as we come to Jesus, as we see him, it's in Jesus Christ, in his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, that he truly presents the true heart of God. That he is the one that is truly loving and caring. He is the one that is slow to anger and patient with us. He is the one who is abounding in this committed, loyal love and is truly trustworthy. Jesus, as we come to him, we find the strength and the steadiness that we need that we're trying to grab in all these different places. In Jesus, we find him as our rock. And so our goal in coming near to God in repentance is not a goal of reaching perfection. It's not a goal to, to perform and achieve God's goodness by how good we are, by how well we worship or how well we pray. It's not based on our performance. In fact, Jesus actually often rebuked those who thought it was based on their performance. He rebuked the perfect people who got it all right and lived by the law, and he welcomed the sinner and those who are lost. And so our place to actually come before God is again a place of repentance. What God is looking for is humility, is people who will come as they are, not thinking that they can perform for God and get the goodness by our performance, but by just being who we are and presenting ourselves. In Mark chapter 2, Jesus says this. He says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. <clears throat> I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And that is the heart of us is to come to God. The heart of us actually presenting who we are to God in repentance. And so in the next couple of services, we're going to keep looking at the, the next verse in Exodus 34, verse 7. We're going to talk about forgiveness we talk about justice and we're going to talk about generational sins. Just exciting stuff. Just if you thought tonight was deep. <laughs> uh, let's just not gloss over this stuff. This is, this is the word of God and there's actually so much encouragement in this. God wants to actually, for you to see his loving heart. He wants to actually, for us to live in, in repentance because he longs and desires for us. He longs and desires for you. And so, yeah, I also encourage you, we're in the season of Lent, we're, we're doing a, a prayer and fasting and there's some flyers at the back and there's also, um, you, you can find the, the flyer online on our website. 
But a part of our prayer um, through the Lent season is that we're going to stop together as a church twice a day um, at 12 p.m. and at 5 p.m. And this is wherever you are, we're stopping, stopping and being where you are just for a couple of minutes to stop, to breathe, to say a prayer and to pray for one another and pray for our world around us. It can take a few minutes or it can take five minutes. Um, we've been doing it, I, you know, I've really enjoyed it these last couple of weeks when we've been doing this, um, these Lent stops twice a day. This doesn't kind of avoid you not actually having a, a kind of a bigger time of devotion. You can it'd still be great to do that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's nice to actually stop and go, I wonder who else is praying right now. Uh, it's a nice thought and feeling to think that uh, other people are praying at the same time as us. And uh, yeah, I quite like because at those times of the day, you get stuck in your work and you're like, I don't want to stop, but it's actually really nice to do that. It's actually really nice to get away from the desk and just stop and be with God for a couple of minutes. And so if you yeah want some more um, information about those times, um, feel free to check out the flyer or our website. Uh, but yeah, let's... Let's use this space in the Lent time to stop, to pray, to fast, and to be with God in repentance as we come before him. Now, just as we close, um, we talked in that, as we, yeah, as we close, we're going to come back to the, the uh, scripture in Joel, in Joel chapter 2, and there's this judgment that came to Israel, but they chose to repent, and from their repentance, God turned and he saw his people and he brings comfort and rejoicing to the people of God in, in the rest of this in this chapter in Joel chapter 2 and then towards the end he the prophet sees a day an amazing day where, where God's spirit will actually bring comfort to all people and these words that the prophet Joel uh, prophesies are the same word that that Peter uses on on the day of Pentecost when the church is launched and these amazing words in Joel chapter 2, verse 28, it says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And so as we live in, in a life of repentance and come before him and see God change us, I believe there's, a, there's an outpouring of God's spirit that actually wants to bring new creation life and invigoration of his spirit to, to bring things to life that were dead, to give us new hope that where there was dormant, that where there was pain and suffering, God wants to bring hope and resurrection life to us. And so believe for his spirit to come upon us as we live lives of repentance, as we come before him. I believe for his spirit to come alive in us and to change us. And transform us. And so I'm going to pray and we're going to have a time of communion. Thank you, God, for all that you do for us. We thank you that you are compassionate and gracious. You're slow to anger. And you're abounding in loyal love and faithfulness. We serve and honour you, our God. We're so grateful for your great love that reaches out to us, that doesn't leave us in our place of sin and misery, but picks us up and leads us forward towards new creation life. We believe and speak an outpouring of your spirit as, as prophes prophesied by the prophet Joel, 
as seen in the, the days of the early church. Come, Holy Spirit, and empower us to live and to obey you, God, to walk in the way that you call us to. God, we need the empowering of your spirit to do this. We know in our own strength we aren't able, God. We know in our own strength we get it wrong, but Lord, we just trust in your spirit to move upon us, to bring hope and life. We love you, our Jesus. In your name, amen.